Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Kimberly Welch is an assistant professor of history at Vanderbilt University. She is a scholar of race, slavery, and law in the early American South. Today we will be discussing her work, Black Litigants in the Antebellum American South. Dr. Welch, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. How does your work adjust understandings of how law and power operated in the antebellum deep south? So before I get to answering that really specifically, maybe I should just give a little bit of description of what the book is, because that also will help us answer this question. So my book, Black Litigants in the Antebellum American South, is a historical study of both free and enslaved African-Americans' use of the local courts in the antebellum U.S. South. And in particular, the project, the book investigates trial court records, so lower court records from the Natchez District of Mississippi and Louisiana between roughly 1800 to 1860. It is a study of civil litigation, so cases in which free blacks and slaves sued whites and other people of color in a wide range of cases. And my research, which is in unpublished lower court records, is taken from namely local courthouse basements and storage sheds, and it includes about a thousand examples of Black litigants using the courts or using the law on their own behalf to protect their own interests, and often successfully. And so we see that local courts and local court records are an important resource for understanding the relationship between legal systems and formerly marginalized people in racially and economically stratified societies. And what this does is, to get to answering your question, is it undermines, helps undermine the assumption that Black Americans were legal outsiders, that the courts were closed to them. But what we see instead is that people of African descent resided at the center of antebellum Southern legal culture, certainly as objects of white concerns about social control and racial hierarchy and so on, so objects of regulation, criminalization. But also, as we look at civil litigation, we see that they were active protectors in their own interests. And one of the things in terms of adjusting understandings of how law and power operates in the antebellum deep south, what we see through looking at the legal action of black people in the south, you know, hundreds of people mounting claims in court, it helps demonstrate that white slaveholders didn't have a stranglehold on knowledge, on truth, on power, but especially a stranglehold on the law. What this legal action reminds us is that law is a complex social practice that's not captured entirely by one group alone or dependent on a single group's ideological commitment. So that law isn't just a province of the powerful, that it can also be a tool. Even if it is a repressive tool at times, it can also be a tool for subordinated people as well. What does studying specifically the Natchez district facilitate in your analysis? What is unique about this region? What trends do you see extending more broadly? Yeah, so let me just start by telling you guys what the Natchez District is or where it is and so on. So the Natchez District is a region in Mississippi and southwest Mississippi and southeast Louisiana 
between about Vicksburg, Mississippi, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So it doesn't include New Orleans. It's the plantation district, the sort of rural plantation district of cotton and sugar production. Natchez itself in the antebellum period was a sort of bustling commercial town with the Mississippi River running through it. And Natchez is a, this is a place where more millionaires lived than in New York City. It's a place where planter power was the most entrenched. Natchez had the second largest slave auction outside of Algiers in New Orleans and a bustling slave trade with some of the richest people in the world. And I really wanted to examine a place where black legal action would probably be the most surprising to people, where we wouldn't expect to see this kind of thing occurring. And this is indeed a place where planter power was most deeply entrenched. And so that's one of the things that attracted me to working in this region. That's one of the things in some ways that makes it unique. It's also unique in that the region encompasses two systems of law that we tend to think of as distinct. So I examined uh, court records in two counties in Mississippi and two parishes or counties in Louisiana. And I did that in part because I started looking in Mississippi and realized that a lot of these people, a lot of these planters owned large swaths of land across the river in Louisiana, and it was a really porous area. But what we have is that we have two systems of law. The common law of Mississippi, which followed the Anglo-American common law tradition that was in most of the country at the time. And then the civil law in Louisiana that stemmed from their French and Spanish colonial past. And so Louisianans, because of this colonial past, conceived of some legal issues differently than their common law counterparts elsewhere in the U.S., in particular, they adhere to a written code of law rather than a legal system based entirely on judges or based on judges' decisions and so on. And so when they entered the Federal Union, when they entered the United States in the early part of the 19th century, Louisianans sought to keep much of that legal tradition and rejected some of the tenets of the common law system as common law adherents moved into that region. And so they rejected, for example, equity principles of equity, or they rejected judicial discretion, and so on. And then they also tried to retain other remnants of their French and Spanish traditions, like, for example, the ability of enslaved people to contract for their freedom and then be able to enforce those contracts in court. That's unique to Louisiana or the ability of free people of color to testify against whites, both in civil actions, but also in criminal actions, and that is also unique. But what I found, though, in studying the Natchez district is that despite Louisiana's civil law heritage, that the disputes involving people of color in the Louisiana courts, as well as the kinds of things they sued over or initiated, the types of claims they mounted, the type of language they used, the reception they received, the verdicts they received, and so on, were all very similar to Mississippi and the common law regime there. And so what I found is that Louisiana shouldn't really be bracketed or thought of as unique in the way that scholars have tended to present it as. And so what we see in the Natchez district is something much more broadly applicable. 
also um, enslaved and free black people asserting legal personhood or claims to accountability or the types of lawsuits they mount, we see in other places as well. And so that a book about legal personhood and so on, as much this book is about and claims to the recognition of and protection of self-ownership to people we don't ordinarily think of as having these kinds of rights, we see in other places as well. So this is a big question, but how does your work complicate understandings of Black agency in the antebellum South? I guess I would start by saying that I don't actually use the term agency in my book or the term resistance, except for at the beginning to say that I find these things limiting. So I try not to think of it in terms of that way or didn't use those terms because I find them not to be fully satisfactory or not to be fully satisfactory categories to describe what I'm seeing in the trial court records. And this is in part because I feel like Framing black litigants' legal action in this way as either agency or as resistance or framing it within the sort of power structure, agency resistance or domination and subordination dialectic always places white slaveholders and lawmakers kind of at the center of African-Americans' engagements with or use of the law. And so what that does, I think, always thinking of it as sort of a pushback against power or something like that, obscures in a lot of ways um, their own interpretations of the law's role in their life and what law means to them and so on. And all the ways then that they leveraged it or manipulated it in service of or to protect their own interests. And we also see you know, they're suing one another as well. So I didn't want just a story about, or, and I also just don't see in the records a story of just a pushback against white power, although that's certainly there as well. So this is more than a battle against power or an undermining or challenging power structures. Instead, I sort of see it as a story of advocacy. And that may be a kind of subtle difference, but I think it's a difference nonetheless of the ways that people of African descent use the courts to create space for themselves. And by space, I don't mean sort of physical space, although every once in a while that is a thing. But by space, I mean sort of the space to have their claims recognized, a space to be heard, a space to tell their stories, a space where they present themselves and their concerns as people who count. So in other words, rather than just, so it's a story of advocacy, but it's also a story of accountability. What are some of the types of lawsuits Black litigants brought? All types. And they brought very similar kinds of lawsuits as many white litigants did as well. So everything from suing somebody over a property dispute to suing for freedom. So we have cases of debt recovery. Those were pretty common cases. And in fact, ones where black litigants won almost all the time. So of the 90 extant cases that I found over this time period, black litigants only lost twice. And two thirds of those cases involved cases against whites. So these are cases where somebody is suing another person over an unpaid loan. 
also that we have those types of cases. We have, there are cases over land dispute. There are lots of cases of litigation over back wages. There are cases suing pe- um, other people of color for breach of marriage contract or for divorce or if women suing their husbands for a separation of bed and board and a separation of property or the ability to control their property as a single woman, even though they remained married to their husband because maybe their husband was a waffler or he kept running the family into debt or maybe they were trying to defraud his creditors or something like that. There are cases like that. There are also many cases for about 130 or so freedom suits where enslaved people sued their owners or masters for their freedom. And there are lots of different types of cases in that. The most common involves kidnapping of free people of color and trafficking them from free states into the Deep South for sale in both New Orleans and Natchez at the big slave markets there. That was a common occurrence. So we have those kinds. We have people who were freed in wills when their masters died and then the heirs did not free them and so on. People who had, in Louisiana in particular, who had contracted to buy themselves or buy family members and then the owner reneged on this and they sued to enforce the terms of their contracts. There are just lots and lots of different types of freedom claims. So those are just those are just a quick description, but there the book itself in the first half discusses the the sort of more tactics that free black and enslaved people uh, utilize when suing in courts of so storytelling, making use of their reputations, what it meant to hire a lawyer, and so on. And then the second half of the book examines some of the types of cases. So the debt recovery, the property disputes, the freedom suits, and then in the final chapter, I put this all together with one single family over the course of about 60, 70 years, where they left behind such a huge swath of documents that I was able to kind of piece together and pull all of this together to look at how this is done in a multi-generational sense. So those are just some of the types. How does your work help us reimagine how law is made, understood, and manifests itself? So, in some ways, this question makes me kind of think of your first question about law and power, and that law is not just the province of one group of people alone. I think that one of the things we see in this book, and we've seen in the work of others such as Ariella Gross or Laura Edwards, Kelly Kennington, Martha Jones, Ann Twitty, and a number of others, that the law, when we look at it on the ground, has many makers. And I think we also see that legal consciousness or legal knowledge or whatever we want to call it involves a person's personal experiences with the law. And these records help us examine some of that about what law does for that person. For some, it's repressive. Others find it to be a useful tool, or they find it to be both, either simultaneously or at different times of their life. I think, too, that it's important to know that this book 
is a focus on civil litigation rather than on criminal law. That shows us something a little bit different. I think most of what we've known about African-Americans' experiences with the Southern legal system comes from a focus on restrictive legislation, so the ways in which people of color were objects to control, or from a focus on criminal law, so African-Americans as, whether free or enslaved, as defendants. And focusing on private law, I think, is important because, well, let me just back up a little bit. By focusing on criminal law, what we're seeing is something much more, I'd say, draconian. And also same with reading the slave codes themselves. And so what that's done is that we see, you know, that black plaintiffs in civil suits remains um, something that we don't know that much about or haven't known that much about in the legal history. But we can't, I don't think we can just reduce their experience to black criminality or regulation, we see a different picture. And what we see is that they're not just defendants, they're not just objects of regulation. We see them to be prolific litigators as well, and directly active in legal proceedings. And in doing so, they sort of use the law to advance themselves. And when they made these claims, they expected the court to listen to them, to validate them, and then to execute those claims. Could you talk about your experiences researching for this book and your thoughts about preserving local court records? So these records are not in any traditional archive. They are, for the most part, still in the hands of the local clerks of the court or the courthouse themselves in these southern towns. And so what that's meant is that they are not preserved, they are not, for the most part, organized, they're still in tri-folded, envelope-looking shapes and then placed into some boxes, some of which have rotted out, others are in drawers where the drawers were then painted shut, and so on. They're usually not in any climate-controlled area, so either heating or air conditioning, some of them are in basements, others were in storage sheds. And so what I did was go to each of these counties or parishes and just start searching, asking the clerks of the court to let me kind of have free reign. Uh, sometimes I found the records right away. Other times I'd be looking through. So, for example, in Iberville Parish, Louisiana, I spent about three or four months going through some records that were held in the courthouse themselves and spending every day having lunch with a number of the employees who, at one point after talking about this so long with them, they remembered they, they had a storage shed somewhere on the outskirts of town and took me out there. And it was raining that day, and the storage shed, we opened it up. It had a dirt floor. There was all these boxes and bags on things on the floor. The boxes had kind of rotted. The records were sort of spread out all over the floor. There was a dead rat in there as well as like all these bugs and so on. And we gathered up a bunch of, we had these leaf bags and we gathered up a bunch of the records in there and brought them back to the courthouse where I dried them off and flattened them out and got new folders for them and organized them and then photographed them all because I wasn't sure what they would do with them after. And I'm really glad I did because a lot of those records turned out to be succession records 
uh, and wills and other things involving free people of color that dated back to the 1770s and 80s in the parish and in the earlier period, the pre-U.S. period. And, you know, I, I'm not sure if they hadn't remembered they had this, what would have happened to those. A lot of them were being kept in folders that were labeled with uh, old employees' names from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, so that you just wouldn't have any idea of what was in there. And, you know, I don't say all this to kind of place blame on the clerks of the courts themselves or anything like that. You know, they don't have, they don't have the money to preserve these, and the states, most of their operation budget comes from fees. They're not getting it from the state. And so they don't have the money uh, or the staff or the expertise to preserve all of these things. And while some of them have tried to get the state archives or something like that to come and get them again, they just haven't been successful. I'd say Adams County, Mississippi, which is where Natchez sits, has been the most successful. The Historic Natchez Foundation uh, some years ago took out all the cases before 1870 and put them into their basement. And it's a good thing they did because it was about six months or so before a flood in that courthouse. But again, they put it in their basement where there wasn't any climate control or anything like that. And now, from what I understand, just in the last couple of years or a year or two, they've received a large grant from the state to redo their building and to put those files into a safer place for preservation. But, you know, these records are in danger of disappearing from history. And, you know, for my purposes for this book, I was interested in all the cases involving people of African descent, either as defendants or as plaintiffs, also as witnesses. I also read through all the, even though the book itself isn't on criminal proceedings, I also read through all of that. But there are so many other things that we can learn from these records, whether it's wives suing their husbands or the poor or so on. All of these records of people who don't ordinarily leave documents behind in the ways that the rich and the powerful and the male and the white have done. And so preserving them is, I think, of utmost importance because these are voices that could be lost forever. And... I hope that with this book and with other people who are working on local court records that we'll get more and more interest in them. Scholars have long used local court records, usually to say something about social life in early America, but there's just so much more that we could do with them. But the first step is to get them out of these basements or even just out of the courthouse themselves and somewhere where even if they're just photographed, because they're falling apart and it would be, it would be a real tragedy to lose them. How does your study help us understand longer trends in the United States' history of race, rights, and civic inclusion? So I think that these cases, that this type of litigation, that this type of legal action, that these types of claims to personhood, claims for accountability, claims to ownership of oneself, to a right to one's body, a right to one's labor, all of these things that derive from personhood, a right to marry, a right to move, a right to contract, the right to sue and be sued, and so on. I think all of this should be seen as part of the long struggle for rights and for inclusion or belonging. 
I think, as I said before earlier, that I see this as a story of accountability, and that is linked to inclusion. So the ways that the courts could be used as a space to be seen as a person who counts, as such that this person could, he or she could make a claim and then have that claim be recognized, have that claim be validated, have that claim be executed. And so this is an assertion that the person, the plaintiff, is deserving and that those who are listening to the plaintiff, that they will hear them and that they're bound to act. And so that's one way I think that accountability is linked to inclusion. So another thing, though, is a lot of this book is about property. And what I see is that property rights were being leveraged as civil rights, that property could be a stand-in for a broad spectrum of other rights. And that, too, is linked to civic inclusion. So in particular, I demonstrate the ways that African-Americans used property rights and claims to ownership, so to of land, of things, of their labor, of themselves, their bodies, and so on. The ways in which they link property and ownership to a much broader constellation of rights and privileges. And so a lot of these cases are about property, yes, but they also use the language of property to describe a number of things. So property, in some ways, was a mode of discourse. It could be rhetoric that was marshaled or leveraged to make their claims recognizable to others and then persuasive. So we see then that for Black Americans, property rights were civil rights, that in the absence of other types of rights, more linked to racial equality, free Blacks and enslaved people of color used property rights to wield or claim a whole range of rights that were linked to possession. So everything from membership in a community to the ability to move to the ability to protect their families and so on. And all of this, by using property, they're sort of tying themselves to a narrative of inclusion within the polity tying themselves to sort of broader national narrative of what it meant to be a member, what it meant to be autonomous, what it meant to be eligible to voice one's opinion, and so on. And so property relations then could be envisioned as generative of an entire system of social or civic relations. And so then Civil litigation, all these lawsuits that we might think of as mundane over debt recovery or for divorce or a property dispute over a pig or over a large piece of land or something like that, I think is a really significant and important component of the racial justice and civil rights struggle. Again, this is tied back to accountability and being a person who counts. These lawsuits are involving claims about who counts whose voices are worth hearing, and who can and who should be included. And as I say at the end of the book, that all of this, I think, is tied to claims to human dignity. And I think that that is definitely part of the long struggle for rights in this country. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was fun.